Well, we continue tonight in our study of redemption accomplished and applied, and we are still in the accomplished section, the first part of redemption accomplished and applied, and we're moving on now uh, to the nature of the atonement. The last two sessions, we considered the necessity of the atonement, and tonight we're going to begin talking about the nature of the atonement, and that'll, that'll take us two sessions as well. So we'll begin with part one tonight, and we will continue on uh, next time with part two. Thus far, uh, we've considered an overview of redemption, what redemption is, and we focused on the atonement's necessity. And when we talked about the necessity of the atonement, we determined that the atonement has something called a consequent absolute necessity. Consequent absolute necessity. And that's a a really big phrase that simply means this. The atonement uh, is not inherently necessary because God is not under any obligation to save anyone. Therefore, we must affirm that the atonement has a consequent necessity. The the consequence uh, of of the atonement, uh, or should I say the atonement is the consequence of God's decree to save sinners. That was the free, uh, sovereign choice that God made before the foundation of the world when he elected to save his people. He chose to save sinners And that choice is what shaped the entire outworking of the atonement. However, we also see that the atonement has an absolute necessity as well because having decreed the salvation of sinners, the atonement of Christ is the only way that God could accomplish that decree. And last time we looked at several texts that demonstrated that God could not save sinners any other way than through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was not one of many options. It was the only way that God could have saved sinners. And we uh, capstoned that with understanding that the fundamental cause of the atonement is the eternal, unchangeable love of God. God. You say, uh, why did Jesus come to earth and die on the cross? Well, because God had decreed to save sinners. Well, why did God decree to save sinners? Because he loved sinners. Well, why did God love sinners? Well, the Bible just says he loves them because he loves them. Uh, So the fundamental cause of the atonement is the eternal, unchangeable love of God. It was according to this love that God decreed the salvation of his people, and the atonement is a demonstration of that divine love. According to Romans 5, 8, God commends his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's a demonstration of his love. And so tonight we move on to the nature of the atonement. Now, as riveting as a two-part study on the necessity of the atonement is, uh, the nature of the atonement, I believe, is, is, is a bit more practical, and I hope that you'll see how this has a direct impact on your Christian life and your understanding of the gospel. Uh, the necessity of the, of the atonement is the why of redemption, but the nature of the atonement is the what of redemption. To consider this topic another way, what we're asking is this. In the giving of his son, what did God provide for needy sinners? 
in the giving of his son, what did God provide for needy sinners? I want you to know that your needs as a sinner before a holy God are manifold. They're manifold. You have many needs. And the more we grow in the faith, the more we understand how God met those needs and the more appreciation we have for his grace. As babies, uh, we don't understand all that our parents do for us. Uh, John and Gabriel, they don't understand all that their parents do for them, right? But as they grow older, they begin to have an understanding. Is, and I tell you what really helps is when you start having babies yourself, amen? And then you start realizing, wow, my parents did quite a bit for me. All those dirty diapers and spoon feeding and staying up and nursing and clothing me and bathing me and carrying me around for the year when I was unable to walk on two feet, right? Um, Well, you know, it's the same in our Christian life. When someone is first converted, they they have a joy and they have an exuberation that God has saved them. But as they grow in the faith and as they study theology, say, uh, you don't want to study theology. It's just going to make you cold and dry and calculated. That's just absolutely foolish. The more you study theology, that is what God has done for you in Christ, the more you will grow with an appreciation for what your Father in heaven has done for you. So this is why we're going through this whole study, because the way we grow in our appreciation and thanksgiving to God is to know more about what he's done for us in Christ. And I say to you that the atonement is what God has done to provide for our many needs. Now, when you think of the word atonement, you think of the concept of the atonement, what are some words that come to mind? Justification. Justification, okay. What else? Salvation. Salvation. What else? Okay, you're getting into redemption applied. Oh, okay. The, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sacrifice, okay. What else? You think of atonement. Repentance. Repentance, okay. These are all, these are all good answers, and we're, we're going to deal with each and every one of them. Some of them we'll deal with in the application of redemption. We'll see that there's a a difference in the accomplishment and the application of redemption. Uh, And John Murray, in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he deals with several categories when he uh, considers the nature of the atonement. But he begins his treatment with several of these specific... uh, 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 He begins his treatment with several of these specific categories by first considering the atonement with a comprehensive category that encompasses the atonement and all of its correlating terms. Okay, so when we think of all that Christ did, when we think of the atonement, when we think of his sacrifice, when we think of his propitiation, his reconciliation, his his giving his life for us on the cross, what is a, a term that could encompass all of these themes? Well, for John Murray, that comprehensive category was the category of obedience. Obedience. Um, 
when you think of all of the aforementioned words as benefits of the atonement, the comprehensive category or the unifying principle that holds them all together is the obedience of Christ as the Son of God. Uh, So that is what we're going to spend our time looking at tonight and what we're going to consider when we talk about redemption accomplished. And I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to open up to Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Um, I think that this lesson really does deserve its own session because immediately some of you might even have this natural repulsion in your mind when you hear of the term obedience as applied to Christ you might think well he's the Lord he's he's the sovereign one how could we talk about the obedience of Christ and so I want us to consider that because as we understand the obedience of Christ we'll understand the nature of the atonement and how he accomplished it so if you're looking there in Isaiah 52 I want you to look at verse 13 Isaiah 52 and verse 13, really, this this is the verse that begins the section that runs all the way through chapter 53, which of course is a very well-known passage. And in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, God introduces his righteous servant. Notice verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, and be very high. A servant is one who obeys his master. If you had a servant, the very definition of your relationship would be that your servant is your servant for the very reason that he obeys you. And in Isaiah 52 and verse 13, the Father refers to Christ as his servant. As his servant. And Notice also in chapter 53, in verse 11, this phrase is repeated. It it kind of bookends this whole section. It says in verse 11 of chapter 53, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. In his capacity as Redeemer, Christ is referred to as the servant of God. This is how he is Uh, revealed and uh, detailed in the text of the Old Testament. But turn also with me to John. John chapter 6. John chapter 6, as we look at the obedience of Christ. John chapter 6 and verse 38. Notice what Jesus says of himself. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus clearly states that he did not come to accomplish his own will or his own purposes, but he came to accomplish the will of another. And that, of course, is the will of the Father. The work of Christ, which he came to earth to accomplish, was assigned to him in the eternal divine decree. That same decree that issued the salvation of sinners, which then necessitated the atonement, 
also assigned Christ with a peculiar work that he would carry out in his earthly ministry. While you're in John 6, turn over just a few chapters to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And notice verses 17 through 18. John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. The Bible says, Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I, might, that I may take it again. Verse 18, here it is. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and power to take it again. This commandment I have received of my Father. So, um, when you think of it this way, you think of the death of Christ. Death of Christ equals the Father's command. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, a word of clarification is important here uh, because there are those that teach it, that teach that Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father. Uh, there are those that teach uh, that Jesus Christ is lesser than the Father, uh, inferior to the Father, and that uh, his obedience is ontological. You know what I mean when I say ontological? I mean the very nature of the Trinity. When we talk about um, ontology, we're talking about the way something is constituted. So in theology, you'll hear people talk about the ontological trinity and the economical trinity. Okay, let me, let me explain this uh, with, a, with a good example. Okay, take Jackson, for example. Ontologically, Jackson Lawley is a uh, white American man who lives in West Tennessee and is married to Emily and is the father of Maddie, Edsel, and Gabriel. That's who he is. That's the ontological Jackson, okay? Now, there's also the economical Jackson. The economical Jackson is an employee of Clayton Holmes, is a member of Christ Fellowship, right? So what, what you see the distinction. The distinction is who he is versus what he carries out, the, the things that he performs. So when we talk about the ontological trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we are talking about three co-equal, co-eternal, co-terminous persons in which there is no subordination whatsoever. Right? There is one will in the Godhead, not two wills. There's one center of consciousness. There's not two centers of consciousness. There are not three gods. There's one God that subsists co-equally in uh, the, the fullness of the Godhead. Three persons that subsist in deity. Okay? Ontological trinity. Economical trinity, we see distinctions that are based upon what the members of the trinity performed. The Father did not come to earth and die on the cross. The Holy Spirit did not send the Son. Right? The Son did not elect sinners to salvation. Ephesians 1 says, the Father hath elected those in Christ, right? So when we're talking about the obedience of Christ, I, I just feel it very necessary to, to include that very important clarification, uh, especially because in our day, um, the, the 
obedience of Christ and the Trinity, the waters are, are seemingly being muddled again, and I think this is an important clarification that we need to make. In the economy of redemption, the Father and the Son carry out distinct yet harmonious roles. The Father designs the plan of redemption and sends the Son, and the Son is sent by the Father and executes the plan of redemption. Uh, It's a glorious truth when we begin to see how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit worked in perfect harmony uh, as they carried out and formed the plan of redemption. Now, when we talk about the obedience of Christ, and this is going to take up uh, the, the remainder of our time pretty much, when we talk about the obedience of Christ, it is often understood in two theological categories. And this is very important. If you don't get anything, get this. There is the active obedience and the passive obedience. Active obedience and passive obedience. Now again, I need to give you two common misconceptions before I can define this and apply it to our study. Number one, passive obedience does not mean total inactivity. It does not mean total inactivity. I like the way John Murray says it in his book. He says, Christ was not, quote, the involuntary victim of obedience imposed upon him. Right. So when we talk about the passive obedience of Christ, we're not saying that there were, were things that he did in which he was completely inactive. Even in his death, Christ on the cross was actively giving himself up. We just read John 10 and verse 18. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. That's action. He's doing it. He's giving it his life. And he even says, I'll take it up again. That's action. Okay? Total inactivity contradicts the very meaning of the term obedience. Because obedience entails and presupposes that you're doing something to fulfill the requirements of the obedience. Uh, Parents, if you were to give a command to your child and they did nothing, well, that's not obedience. In order for them to be obedient, they have to do what you said. And we already have seen that the Father gave a commandment to Christ to carry out His earthly ministry. The commandment was what? Go to the cross, lay down your life for the sheep. And so when we talk about his passive obedience, we're not saying that he was totally inactive. Second misconception is this. We cannot allocate certain parts of our Lord's work to his active obedience and then certain parts to his passive obedience. So uh, sometimes you will see people make the common mistake of saying, well, the active obedience of Christ, that refers to his sinless life. Uh, His life lived under the law of God, obeying God, that's, that's just his act of obedience. And then his passive obedience refers to his death on the cross. Okay, that, You'll hear that distinction being made. It's a it's very common distinction to, to make. Um, but it simply cannot be made. Uh, the, the active and passive obediences of Christ cannot be so separated. Okay, So the proper understanding of the active and passive obedience of Christ is this. They are not two obediences. They're not two obediences. But they are two aspects of one indivisible obedience. Right? So, uh, 
It wasn't that Christ was actively obedient and then passively obedient, uh, but it, it is such that his one obedience can be considered as both active and passive. The distinction between active and passive obedience, the active and passive obedience of Christ, rests on the nature of the law of God. You will not understand redemption if you do not have a proper theology of the law of God. Um, I could recommend several resources that would help you tremendously. Ernie Reisinger's book on the law and the gospel. Samuel Bolton's book on the true browns of Christian freedom. Uh, John Colquhoun's book on a treatise on the law and the gospel. Uh, But you need to understand the law of God if you're going to understand redemption. And the active and passive obedience rests on the truth of the law of God. Well, what do I mean by that, the truth of the law of God? Well, the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive commands. The law of God has punishments and requirements, right? The law demands obedience. The law of God demands, what, a perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. The three P's of the law's requirements, a personal, perfect, perpetual obedience, doesn't really matter the order, just remember them, right? Uh, because you'll, you'll run across some, such as those who teach the new perspective on Paul, and even some of the federal vision guys that will say, oh, no, no, the, the Old Testament was a, it was a religion of grace, and the law never required perfect obedience, that's silly. It's foolishness. It's, it's false doctrine. The law of God not only requires your obedience, but it also prescribes a punishment for your disobedience. Okay? Well, what does this have to do with the active and passive obedience of Christ? Well, remember that your salvation not only requires the forgiveness of sins, which is what? The satisfaction of the law's penalty. But to be saved, you must also have a positive righteousness that is acceptable to God. Innocence does not get you into heaven. Righteousness is what gets you into heaven. In Christ's passive obedience, Christ secures the forgiveness of our sins by suffering under the wrath of God in our stead, by becoming a curse for us by humbling himself by condescending by suffering under the curse of the law you say well when did he do that well yes he did that on the cross that was certainly the climax of his sufferings but he suffered throughout his earthly life as well because he condescended and he became a man and he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities do you know what the feeling of our infirmities are the curse of the law he got sick when he didn't eat anything he got hungry When a sharp object grazed his flesh, he bled. That's the the being touched with the feeling of our infirmity. He suffered under the curse of the law. That's his passive obedience. In his active obedience, Christ secures our justifying righteousness by perfectly keeping the law in our place. Not only does he suffer for us, he also lives for us. Christ, in the place of his people, actively obeyed every command of the law. Every time the law says, thou shalt do, Christ did it for you. And every time the law says, thou shalt surely die, 
Christ died for you. Do you see how important it is to have a proper theology of the law of God in order to understand the gospel? As guilty sinners before God, we need to be cleansed and we need to be clothed. Cleansed of our sin and clothed in righteousness. So we speak of the obedience of Christ as active and passive because Christ's obedience meets both of these needs. Christ's obedience meets both of these needs. In his passive obedience, he pays our sin debt and cleanses us from sin's guilt. In his active obedience, that is his holy life, it is imputed to us and he clothes us in his righteousness. So he meets our manifold need. Not just in his death, but also in his life. So there's two implications here of the active and passive obedience of Christ. I could give you uh, 25 Hundred implications of the active and passive obedience of Christ. It affects the way we live our Christian life. It affects the way we view the law of God. Uh, It affects the way we evangelize. But let me just give you two that are very pertinent uh, for our study. Number one, it was not merely through his incarnation that Christ secured our redemption. That is his, his human life. There is a reason why Christ did not go to the cross immediately after condescending to earth. And there is also a reason why Christ, after living a righteous life for 33 and a half years, did not just ascend back up into heaven. Do you realize he could have done that? He could have lived a a sinless life, a perfect life, a righteous life. He could have suffered amongst sinners and he could have come to the end of his 33 and a half years and he could have said, I'm through with you. I'm done with you. I want nothing to do with humanity. I've been here 33 years. That's 33 years long enough. I'm going back to heaven. I say he could have done that. Could he have done that? Well, ontologically, (laughs) yes. Economically, no. He had to go to the cross. He had to go to the cross. Um, if I could be a little pastoral, I know this is a, more of a theological study, but think about it this way. You live your Christian life. You strive after holiness. You, 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 you shun sin, right? One of your chief motivations for doing that is what? The fact that you know that what awaits you at the end of your life of pursuing righteousness is the glories of heaven. Christ came to this earth knowing that God had commissioned him to live a sinless life and knowing that that sinless life would lead him to a cruel, rugged cross. And he did it anyways. He lived it anyways. But it was not merely his incarnation. In order to go to the cross as a perfect savior, he had to earn an active, meritorious, personal righteousness. What did did he say to John the Baptist? He he went to John the Baptist and he said, you need to baptize me. And John the Baptist said, what is a very reasonable thing to say, no, no, Lord, it is me who needs to be baptized of you. And what did Jesus say? No, suffer it so now, because thus it becomes to fulfill all Righteousness. In other words, what he was saying was, John, no, you don't understand. I need to be baptized because I've got to perfectly obey God. 
I've got to do everything that he has commanded of Old Testament and New Testament Christians. And so he is baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. What do you, th- what do you think Jesus was meaning when he, would, when he would oftentimes say, well, my hour has not come yet. My hour has not come yet. There are still some righteous acts that I must do to perfect myself in righteousness. What you could never do, if you were given a million lifetimes to try, he did it in 33 and a half years. He lived perfectly and sinlessly before God. Second implication of the active and passive obedience of Christ, it was not merely through his death that Christ secured our redemption. Had he committed just one sin, his death would not have had the power to save anyone, not even himself. You understand that? Had he committed but one sin, The gates of heaven would have shut, closed. He would have not been able to enter in. One sin. In order for his death to have the efficacy to save an innumerable company of sinners, Christ had to be absolutely sinless and he had to be perfectly righteous when he hung on that cross. Because the only substitute that God would accept as a propitiation for the sins of his people, was a perfect, spotless substitute. And that's what he was on the cross. So, be very weary. And in fact, I would even go so far as to say, mark and avoid uh, false teachers who would try to argue that the active obedience of Christ is, 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 is unnecessary, or some will even argue that it's not even a valid theological concept. And they argue that way because they're antinomians who don't believe in the validity of the law of God. And, and, and uh, you'll find this, like I, I mentioned, on the one extreme in the new perspective on Paul in Federal Vision. But you know what? I'll say something controversial. You'll find it on the other extreme too in some of the New Covenant theology circles. I know that because I, I remember when I was doing my undergraduate work, we were assigned a commentary on the book of Romans. And... Uh, I was 19 pages in, and the guy writing the commentary on the book of Romans was arguing uh, that that uh, the active obedience of Christ was a made-up theological category by those who hold to a faulty view of the law of God. He even used the phrase, he said that to, to say that the active obedience of Christ is necessary for our salvation is fictitious, vicarious law-keeping. Well, it's not fictitious, it is vicarious, and yes, he did keep the law on my behalf. Praise God that he kept the law on my behalf. Uh, But this fellow was, of course, arguing that, no, 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 Uh, when Christ came, he just did away with the law completely, and all we need is his death on the cross and his, 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 uh, his... divine righteousness that is somehow imputed to us. And so what I did was, I, I, I on the front cover of the book, I read that whole commentary, it was like 400 pages, and I wrote down every single instance in which the author denied the active obedience of, uh, the imputation of Christ's active obedience, and it was like some 15 different places where he did that all throughout the book of Romans. And I took it to my professor, and uh, apparently the professor had been using that book for years and uh, hadn't read it 
in a, in a while, and I brought it up to him, and he just kind of brushed it off. I think he didn't want to, because I, I know that he affirmed the act of uh, imputation of Christ's act of obedience, but he did not want to have to wrestle with the fact that he was using a book in his class that denied it. Very serious stuff, okay? So uh, we must understand that we desperately need the righteous life of Christ accredited to our account. Not only did Christ die a substitutionary death for his people, he also lived a substitutionary life on their behalf. Okay? Both his life and his death were demonstrations of his obedience as the Messiah. Well, the obedience of Christ is not only seen in what he did, but it's also seen in the manner and disposition in doing it. Right, because, uh, again, parents, you know that obedience is a little bit more than just doing what you say. If you tell your child to go in and clean up their room, and they stomp down the hall, and they start violently throwing things into drawers, um, is that obedience? Um, Most every parent would say, absolutely not. In fact, in some ways, it's worse than if they just said, no, Dad, I'm not going to do that, and they went and sat down on the couch. Well, I want you to understand that the obedience of Christ was not only seen in what he did, but it was seen also in his disposition in doing it. Christ did not begrudgingly go to the cross, nor did he live a sinless life with reluctance and resentfulness. Again, Isaiah 53, 11. He shall see the travail of his soul. I love the way the King James puts that. The travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And the word endure does not mean the way we oftentimes put it. Some of you, you know, every Monday morning you endure a faculty meeting at work, right? Uh, No, endurance in the biblical sense of the word is he persevered through it. John 4 and verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, what Jesus came to this earth for was to obey the Father and to carry out the Father's will. So this brings us to our last consideration this this evening. Knowing that Christ is truly man. I want you to think about this question. Knowing that Christ is truly man, we affirm the full and real humanity of Christ. And knowing that it was in his humanity that he obeyed his father, and he lived a sinless life, and he died a substitutionary death on the cross, we must ask this question. How did Christ attain the volition, that is the will, and the disposition, that is the attitude, of obedience? How did he attain his his disposition of obedience? And not only did he attain it, he perfectly attained it. How? Perhaps you might say, well, because he didn't have a sin nature. And I would say, well, that's true, but neither did Adam, and he disobeyed God. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you might say, well, Jesus didn't sin because Jesus is divine. Eh? When, you, when you make that argument, what you're doing is you're conflating the two natures of Christ as truly God and truly man. I've heard that argument. People will say, well, Jesus couldn't sin because Jesus was God. Well, there's a problem because he died on the cross. 
And God does not die. <laughs> so we must understand that his sufferings and his obedience were in his humanity. Well, our brother's already given the spoiler, but turn to Hebrews 5. Turn to Hebrews 5. Uh, this is a precious truth about the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, that I don't know about you, but when I first really grasped this concept in relationship to the sinless life of Christ, my, my, how it blessed my soul and made me just totally rethink the way I live my Christian life. Notice what Hebrews 5 says in verse 8. In verse 8. The Bible says this. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5 clearly tells us that Jesus Christ learned obedience and that he learned his obedience from the things that he suffered. Well, what do we make of that? He earned the right to be the savior of his people because he was perfected through his sufferings. Now, his perfecting, the perfecting of Christ, was not a sanctification from unholiness to holiness. But there was a perfecting in the development of his obedience as the man, Christ Jesus. And as he worked out an act of righteousness, he became more and more obedient. In other words, it is totally accurate to say that in the humanity of Christ, he was more obedient at 33 than he was at 12. He knew more at 33 than he did at 12. Luke 2 tells us that. He grew in knowledge and wisdom and stature and favor with God. Now, I want you to make this connection. There's another man in the Bible that, and there's only been two men in all of history that have ever existed in this state. There was another man in the Bible that existed before God in a state of untested obedience. Adam. When Adam was created, he did not have a sin nature. He was not a sinner. But he existed before God in untested obedience. And Adam was given the commission what? To be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, take dominion over everything he saw. In other words, Adam was never meant to stay in the Garden of Eden. But Adam was was under a probationary period, and that probationary period, had Adam obeyed, would have led to a greater glory. So too was the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came into the world, he was before his heavenly Father in untested obedience. But unlike Adam, when his sufferings came, when his temptation came, he didn't sin. He obeyed God. He earned righteousness. He did what Adam failed to do. Amen. And the climactic expression of his perfected obedience was his willing death 
on the cross of Calvary. The cross is the pinnacle of our Lord's obedience. Philippians says he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And all of those promises given to Adam, be fruitful and multiply. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it, brothers and sisters. Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over the whole earth. Our Lord, the ascended, risen, redeemer, has an offspring of spiritual children and all dominion on the earth belongs to him because he did it. What Adam couldn't do, what you and I broke, he fulfilled. John Murray says it this way, it was only as having earned obedience in the path of inerrant and sinless discharge of the Father's will that his heart and mind and will were framed to the point of being able freely and voluntarily to yield up his life in death upon the accursed tree. John Murray also says, it is obedience learned through suffering, perfected through suffering, and consummated in the suffering of death upon the cross that defines his work and accomplishment as the author of salvation. Amen. 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 When we consider that Jesus Christ left the splendors of heaven where he sat at the Father's right hand to come down to earth and humble himself and to become obedient even to the point of death on the cross, do we not have reason to praise his glorious grace throughout the ceaseless ages? The atonement is what our God has done for us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we know and apprehend what he's done for us in Christ, the more we'll offer our thanksgivings to him. So when we talk about atonement, when you think about Christ and all that he's done, I want you to think about the term obedience. He was obedient in your stead, in his life and in his death. That is the comprehensive category. Next time, we'll consider some specific categories under this unifying principle. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of the Word of God and the privilege to expound upon these things and to study what our God has done for us in Christ and uh, what our Lord did in our behalf, obeying you perfectly, fulfilling the broken covenant of works, earning a righteousness, but Lord, then going to the cross and suffering and offering up that righteousness so that we not only could be forgiven of our sins, but cleansed. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.